This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is industrial designer and co-founder of the Healthy Materials Lab at Parsons School of Design, John Sara Roof. John Sara's career took an unexpected turn following a business trip to China. There, to oversee production of a new furniture collection, she witnessed firsthand the environmental impact of the manufacturing process, and it changed forever her outlook on how products are made. Today, through her work at the Healthy Materials Lab, she hopes to steer designers and the industry in the direction of making choices that are better for people's health and the environment. I spoke with John Sara about the experiences that led to her current pursuit, what questions the industry can begin to ask about materials and ingredients, and the transformational role designers can play to change the world. This podcast is sponsored by Laloy, whose latest introductions include Goodweave certified handmade rugs, a collaboration with designer Gene Stouffer, and woven wall art, all of which you can see in person at Las Vegas Market later this month. Make an appointment for a tailored tour of the showroom and shop hundreds of one-of-a-kind rugs and pillows that the Laloy team sources from all over the globe. Learn more at laloyrugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Daniel House Club. Daniel House Club takes the most painful logistics of running a design business out of your hands, so you can spend your time doing what you do best, designing. With helpful tools and the concierge service you need to manage your clients, track orders, and handle shipping, Sourcing online has never been easier. Plus, Daniel House Club gives you access to hundreds of top vendors and the industry's lowest flat rate shipping. Join the club today at danielhouse.club. And now, on with the show. So, if memory serves, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, right? Studying That's industrial right. design was, was how you got yeah. and then a, And then a master's from Cranbrook and... Um, yeah, I studied industrial. I just grew up with a pencil in my hand. Like I, I grew up drawing everything. I felt like drawing was my first language and English is still my second language. I think I chose industrial design because I knew that I wanted to serve others through the things that I make or do or draw. Like I, I want that to be a contribution to society in some way. What, so what did you think industrial design was? Because so I often I- didn't even know about it. Exactly, okay. I mean, I, I didn't even know that. I mean, I grew up in the country and I was like, I want to go to art school. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all, like, I, I kind of would like to like spend my time with a lot of paint and like stuff. Right. And I want to make stuff. And so I thought maybe I would go into painting or sculpture or something like that. And then when I was at school, they introduced this thing called industrial design. I was like, what does it mean, industrial design? <laughs> like, design of industry? Like, <laughs> Well, and what, what ultimately did you discover it meant? It's like the design of all those things that you live with have to be designed. And everybody lives with things, stuff, furniture, to, you know, to a teacup, to a spoon, to, you know, in, in our school at RISD, they were designing... Um, the person who designed Cuisinart, you know, mm. the Cuisinart machine, food sure. processing, yeah. was the head of the department at that time or, or was teaching in the department. Really? Yeah. So Mark Harrison. So 
you know, they designed pens and they designed, NASA was always a partner. Like, what if we designed the interior of spaceships? And the way that RISD approached it was that um, in order to know how to design all this stuff, you needed to know the materials that they were all made of. Mm. And so the training, like the good, like two years of initial training was the more understanding of how to make things, cut things, weld things, not to become an expert necessarily, but to understand how the material performs and can be shaped. So understanding what things are made of and what they should, somebody would say like, you have to be sensitive to the material because it only wants to do certain amount of things. And if you're not gonna do those certain amount of things, maybe you should switch to a different material and then it performs in this different way and the form will, will follow in that different way. I mean, think about it. Like I, I was always interested in the found object and transforming it into something else. Before I went into furniture design, I realized that my interest in all of this was, I thought it was all about architecture for a, a, long, a bunch of years. Like, oh, my interest is like making things, but we have to make space. We have to make, right. be, because that's what influences behavior. So I went and worked for architects in New York. And then I went to graduate school for architecture. And so it wasn't until after I had done architecture school that I realized, oh, wait, I can still take that thinking about how <laughs> and apply it to furniture making. So um, after going through a master of architecture program and working with an old house in Detroit as the, the main kind of medium for my thesis, mm. I realized that like that, that idea of things and spaces shape our lives can be applied to any object. Doesn't matter if it's a, you know, 12 story building or a, you know, a, a spoon. It's, it can be applied to all of these things. And, um, and I also was still driven by this idea that everybody deserves to have good design. I felt like it should be democratic. It's like Bauhausian right. idea. Yes. Which is when I thought, you know what, I really want to go make mass-produced things. I want to design really good things that are mass-produced so that the price can be low and low enough and achievable for other people. But then you get to mass-design furniture and discover some of the challenges of that process, right? That's right. So I, you know, at the time I um, had some friends who were working with Martha Stewart and there was all kinds of that thing happening. You know, this democratic design was happening for sure when they launched the Kmart brand, for example. Mm. That was a big deal. It was really super cool. You know, this idea that the, you could go and buy inexpensive things that were really well-designed at Kmart. It was at that time after architecture school that I realized like um, if I could design really great things for mass production, that would be fun. And at the moment, that moment, Martha Stewart, the company, Martha Stewart was just about to launch a new furniture line that was a little bit higher end than Kmart, mm. but still in the affordable, you know, still kind of not super high end custom. So still kind of like, I guess it was like middle-class residential right. furniture and they needed designers. And I kind of like stepped into that role right, right off the bat. It was like two of us designing a lot of furniture. And the way that it worked was, you know, Martha had collected housefuls of certain kinds of furniture and we went and measured, measured it all, like down to the 16th of an <laughs> inch and then reproduced pieces and then built new collections off of those pieces and, you know, made it part of her line, you know, this line right. of Martha Stewart with Bernhardt Furniture. And um, we worked very closely with Bernhardt Furniture to make it mass produced. And 
I spent many, many weeks or months out of the year traveling to all the factories all over Asia, mostly, to visit the factories to make sure that designs that we were designing were getting produced in the way that we had designed them. You know, it was all very industry focused and I learned a whole lot. But I also, after several years in to that experience, realized that the furniture I was designing was being made in such a way and finished, you know, finished mm. in a way that was polluting the air. Like I, mm. you know, I woke up early one morning at the hotel in China and we were, I went for a run early in the morning before we had to go to the factory and I couldn't really breathe very well. And the sky was kind of tinted green. And I realized at that moment, I realized, oh my goodness, the stuff I'm designing is being made and producing the same pollution that I'm breathing right now. Yeah. And that's not, I'm just visiting, but there's people who live here year yeah. round. This is their home. And so I started looking for another way. I actually pitched at some point, like Martha, to the folks at Martha Stewart, Gail Towie was the person who was creative director and said like, could we come up with another way to do this? Like at that point, like it was, it was mid 2000s, like a green furniture line some kind of way that we could continue to make great designs, but they wouldn't be harmful. Right. And what, and what was the reception that that, that idea got, that conversation? Did that, were you escorted out with, with security or how was that handled? <laughs> I thought I might be. But, <laughs> I mean, Gail was open to it, to a certain, you know, she said, you know, you could, you could spend your time making a big pitch and we could see how this could go. And, you know, it just sounded like a really long process that I would have to really push forward and, I didn't even exactly know how that was going to all happen. And it wasn't, the door didn't slam in my face, but it wasn't something that anybody else was going to carry along with me. I would have to really pilot it. And anyway, at that same time, as things happen, I hear of this small startup that's trying to make green, healthy furniture. Right. And I think, oh, well, that's an opportunity. Let me learn all about it. And they had this other word in there. They said healthy. And I didn't know about that. I didn't know what that meant. I understood about like wood, you know, FSC certified woods. And I understood about different production techniques. And I understood about carbon emissions, for example. But I didn't really know about what that meant. How do you make healthy furniture? I wasn't really sure about that. But I had the experience that they needed, which was like how to work with factories, how to make things in a mass produced way, um, how to design things for a market that was a mass market. And so they invited me to join their team. And in exchange, I learned about, I, they had a, a board of advisors who were toxicologists and people who really understood that all those materials that go into making a piece of furniture have an impact on our health. And the idea for this company was to make children's furniture, you know, start with right. the kids because the kids are most vulnerable because as children, your organs are developing, your brain is developing, your skin is, everything's developing, your bones. And if you're exposed to toxics at that age, you can get deformities. And so the business idea was let's mass produce healthier, sustainable children's furniture and get kids to be healthier so that everybody's future can be healthier. Yes, yes. It was a, like a mission-based for-profit called Q Collection. 
they, I don't know if you remember them, but they, the idea. I do. I remember them so well, Anthony and Jesse. Oh, and, you do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It was a, it was incredibly innovative. And funny enough, I later worked for a textile company that was trying to oh, cool. only use the, the dyes that were non-carcinogenic. And later that would get folded in with the Q collection. And yes. so they ended up partnering Twill Textiles yes, and Q exactly. collection. Yes. Uh, so I did know that company well and, and admired so much of what you all were, were doing. And it was, it seemed so early at the time. It seemed like so much of this conversation was new to everyone. And well, what do you mean? How are you going to do that? How are you going to make all of this healthier to your point and, yeah. and, and safer for everyone? Oh, that's great that you remember that. That's, yeah, yeah it was like early. It was early yes. on. And like the original Q collection, and my friend Helen Quinn was designing all those textiles. She had that textile back then. So she said, hey, there's this thing going on over here. Why don't you come? Yeah. So Anthony and Jesse were they they had this company and it was all custom. It was very to the trade, you know, you know, um, manufacture as it's needed, more custom furniture, and then this textile line that was all healthier. And that the idea was like, well, couldn't we have a children's mass-produced line? How do we do that? And that's when I joined them. So they were already having success in the custom line. But that's much easier to do in a way because you work very closely with the fabricator. But then how do you do it at scale? How do you scale that idea to be mass? And I came and I said, okay, I want to do this, but I only want to do it if we can manufacture it in America. And that was partially because of this carbon footprint of shipping right. things back and forth to yeah. you know the other side of the world. But it was also because I realized that like, the satisfaction that comes from making something, which I felt as a student, actually happens in the factory. That we think of factories as machines that make everything. And sure, that happens for like super mass production, like you know, things that are plastics that are blow molded or things that are made in the hundreds of thousands of parts are people spend the tool the money on the tooling to make it robotic. But cut furniture that's made, you know, a hundred pieces at a time is pretty much handcrafted. Like it's it's pretty much people there putting things together. Absolutely. And and I think so many people don't realize that even right, even with some of the big American furniture companies, it's it's people. It's people. And that's what's yeah. so interesting. And we had so much know-how here in the States for so long. And you know, I had the advantage to having visited all the Bernhardt factories when they're they were still up and running right before they the Martha Stewart line was the first line that they were going to experiment as a full offshore venture. Mm. And so we made a lot of the prototypes in the shops that they were still building. And there were great people and a great community of people around the building and pride about building the furniture. And I just really wanted that to be part of our American culture again, that we don't just ship all that knowledge offshore, but that we continue to have that kind of you know, blue collar Phys you know, physical know-how in the fabric of our American culture. And they, Anthony and Jesse agreed. They said, okay, let's make it here. And that right. would be better anyway, because we can visit much more easily and much yeah. more inexpensively to travel. So we started, you know, contacting wood furniture companies who could make our furniture. And we met some great companies. We ended up producing the first Green Guard certified cribs in the world. GreenGuard was just starting at that time too. Right. And um, you know, they were testing indoor air quality testing in chambers in Georgia. They would put a crib inside this kind of chamber 
lock it up, and measure the off-gassing for two weeks. And then they would come back to us with a report. And we didn't pass. And we didn't pass. And we would go back to our factory and say, you know what? This isn't, we have to change something. We changed the glues. We changed, well, I, th- I think the glues we understood. And then, but we ended up having to work a lot with finish. You know, mm, how do you- the paints and everything. And yeah. yeah, I remember. We worked with Sherwin-Williams actually a lot to, to change the formula so it would be healthier. And eventually- yeah. We passed the test in these air chambers and we were able to put on the, you know, put out there that we were Green Guard certified and these were the healthiest cribs on the market. And that was huge. You know, it was huge. And my learning curve in that time was huge because I started to learn, you know, a, a lot about these ingredients in paints and finishes that I I couldn't even pronounce, you know, apparently <laughs> like, you know, you're like, oh, what's, what is that? <laughs> so yeah, it was a great, it was a it was a great learning um, adventure for me, but it was also very it was just an exceptional time to be able to introduce something new to the market that was really meaningful to people. And it was so poignant because, and I remember Jesse was sort of getting called away, if I recall, and it needed to go off and have a different life with family and that's and right. Be, be in the mountains or something, if I, if I remember. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> right. And, you know, just as we were lifting off, um, it was also 2008 and the stock market is crashing right. and, right. you know, the recession is coming and we need new venture capitalists to yes. invest. And, you know, yes. we're, we're on our way, but we need a little bit um, more in, uh, injection of more. And I think the energy just... Yeah, Jesse's kids were getting older. He wants to raise them right. in the in the mountains, and right. we need more. So the whole thing just said, you know what? That was a good experiment. It was such a weird time. It was like right at that time that like all these wood manufacturers were closing too in this country. Mm. Like they couldn't make it anymore because there was there was so much. The big companies were sending them all offshore, and they just couldn't re- compete. The American made right. could not compete with these offshore companies. And so they were closing. We made cribs with one factory. And just as we got a great run off the line, they would say, you know what? We're closing our doors. And then we would move to another factory. Same thing after a couple of years. We finally moved to making them lean manufacturing. You know, like we brought in somebody who had worked with Herman Miller. And he was like, okay, let's just do a lean manufacturing. We'll make 10 at a time. We'll make parts enough right. for the other. I, I just learned a whole lot about that. But then sure. that company was closing. And um I was doing Q Collection, and then while I was doing Q Collection, uh, the Parsons asked me to, you know, could you step in here and launch an MFA interior design yes, program? Yes, I love this. <laughs> could you come and launch an MFA program? And, and Right. <laughs> and I was kind of like, I don't know about interior design. I know about architecture and industrial design. But then I think, you know, the sustainability piece and this idea of what makes a healthier thing, a healthier right. furniture or a healthier object or a healthier space, healthier interior was really intriguing to the dean at that time and the, the, the leadership. And But uh, while I was directing the interior design program, um, there came this opportunity to be involved in, in an organization of, of many schools and um, several, several schools, the City of University of New York and Brooklyn College and a few other schools and the Durst organization to think about sustainable and healthier buildings and spaces and the materials for buildings and so and healthy building network also. And so um, I started joining those conversations with a colleague of mine named Allison Mears, who at that time, she was a director of the interior design and 
architecture undergraduate program and then moved into a deanship at Parsons. And we started, we were very interested in started attending these, these um, meetings. Uh, and then this opportunity came about with the Healthy Building Network to apply for a grant together, a big grant to fund an effort to find healthy materials and transform affordable housing to be healthier. And we were going to do this through like multi-pong approach, a collaborative grant where we would set up a lab at Parsons called the Healthy Materials Lab. Healthy Building Network would continue to do what they do. They were associated with the Green Science Policy Institute, which really advocates for policy change in chemistry. And then a Health Product Declaration Collaborative, which was saying, you know, transparency, this idea that we need to know what the ingredients are, is really imperative in this whole process. First, we need to know, but then we have to set up we ha- we have to set up an entity that really, you know, makes that nutrition label for building products evident, helps manufacturers declare what's in their products, and then helps evaluate them. And so that's what the health product declaration is all about: declare what's in your product, and let's right. see. So that all needed funding, and you know, we were we were given this grant, all four organizations as a collaborative venture. And the project is called the Healthy Affordable Materials Project. And um, that's very exciting. The gift, you know, the receipt of this grant meant a game changer for us. And my, you know, Allison Mears and I, like, I pulled away from our other positions. I kind of stepped away from the directorship of the interior design program. She stepped away from her deanship. And we started this small research lab at Parsons to really explore this idea of like healthier materials for affordable housing. What does that mean? But also how do we build awareness in the architecture and design community that this is even a problem? <laughs> because yes. most people don't know, like I didn't know before I went to Q Collection that this was even an issue that we needed to be aware of. I mean, many people know about, you know, Forest Stewardship Council, FSC. You know, we need to protect our forests so we can't have mass logging. Like those kinds of pieces of sustainability are more understood. But this kind of invisible toxicants that come into our homes from the things that we buy, like, or that our, our homes are built from materials that are, have toxics in them, like most people didn't know at that time. And this was 2015, 2015, that we started um, the Healthy Materials Lab. And we didn't really know how we were going to make all this change. You're like, <laughs> okay, now we have some money. Now we can set up this lab. We can hire students. We can hire some faculty. What do we do? How do, what do, we, how do we set this roadmap? Eventually what we realized is what we could do is we could offer education to folks to get them you know, up to speed with the, the way we understand it now and get other folks to understand this is the material health is a real issue. And we could also do our own evaluation of materials and provide that information out there for free on a website and just say, here are some examples of healthier materials that you could build with. And then we could start to engage people who are are designing or building or developing affordable housing and say, hey, look at this, use these instead of this. And just start there, you know, flip out one material for another. And that's a first step.
We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Daniel House Club. There's never been a better time to join Daniel House Club. July 21st through the 23rd, Daniel House Club is celebrating Founders Day. All weekend, Daniel House Club members will move up one tier. That's three days to enjoy an additional 10% savings on top of the industry's lowest trade pricing. It's time to take control of your design business and join Daniel House Club today at danielhouse.club. We don't have time, sadly, to, to get into, into the, the book, uh, Material Health and, and Design Frontiers, but you, you shared a bit of it with me. And one of the things that, that stuck out for me, and I'm just going to paraphrase a, a, a passage from it, was the, the post-Second World War faith in chemical developments designed to accelerate process and make materials more robust or even maintenance-free has brought this Pandora's box of so-called advancements, but also health catastrophes. Yeah. And, and so I I want to get into this a little bit just because I feel like there is this, this movement in, and specifically I'm talking about now in the interior design industry, but also in architecture as well, this movement towards wanting everything to be practically indestructible, to have all these materials that seemingly can last for forever regardless of conditions and uh, moving away from more natural materials and there's a lot of talk about do we do we need to go back in the other direction you and I have talked in the past about uh, hemp for example and right and we and we sort of lost the knowledge of how to work with with hemp because it was outlawed uh, for a long time because it was connected with THC and all these misperceptions about that. But it seems like part of this conversation is a discussion around natural materials and and reintroducing and re-educating people about those. But also to your point, what else do we need to educate people about? What are some of the things that designers can ask for or, or 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 start to insist upon from the companies that they that they work with that's that's what i want to better understand yeah yeah you know i think the first question and this is the first question is what is it made of that's the first step and get a list of those ingredients and determine whether those ingredients are harmful or not harmful but by evidencing that or making that transparent we start to see not only all these ingredients that we can't pronounce necessarily, right. <laughs> you know, because they're methyl, you know, methyl chloride, or, you know, they have all of these chemical names, which are difficult, but they're also numerous, you know, sometimes that list of materials is, you know, three inches long. Yeah. And then where is it made? So if it's made on the other side of, the, you know, the world, there are many, many hands that have to touch that thing before it gets to you. Is that going to be healthy? Not to mention the greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted in order to get it to you. So that's another, where is it made? And then how is it made? Are there lots of chemicals used in the process of making? And then once it's installed, does it need other kinds of finishes in order to perform in the way that you want it to perform? Perform so that it's, you know, antimicrobial or to perform so that it has no flame retardants, for example, or to perform so that it's, you know, it has, um, you know, nothing sticks to it, like 
stain repellents or Teflon, for example, if it has all these performance characteristics that are not inherent in that material, then you know that something has been added. If they advertise that all of these things exist, oh, it's antimicrobial, which, you know, after COVID or during COVID, everybody wants something that's antimicrobial. We're terrified right. of getting yeah. this. But it turns out that those antimicrobial chemicals are really harmful for our hormonal systems in our bodies and really can actually change our hormones for good. Mm. But if we just wash with soap and water often, that's all we need. And it's much more effective and less harmful. Or flame retardants, for example, are carcinogenic. They're, uh, they're linked to disease in people and also, you know, a disease in animals. Like uh, this cat spends a lot of time on my sofa and my sofa is covered with flame retardants. My cat has a much higher um, risk of feline cancer, for example. So that's the kind of information we really need to get out there. Because I think if people if people thought their pets were at risk, <laughs> right. I, I, right? in this country, I feel like that that's the biggest hot button issue of, of, of them all. Uh, but so interestingly, I feel like with the flame retardants and I feel like at, at Neocon, a lot of companies were talking about other alternatives or maybe we, we don't need as many treatments and at right. And maybe uh, we, we, we don't need uh, as many protections or go back to finding materials. I, I remember talking with, uh, with a hand-painted wallpaper guy who was talking about, well, it turns out silk naturally flame retardant. And so let's, again, let's look at the material before we start thinking we need all of these other treatments or, or, or things to, to add to it. Right. And right? that's what gets so exciting. I mean, that's where the optimism comes because there's actually all these, wool, wool is a yes. natural flame wool. retardant. Like I have a little here, like the, the wool, you know, and this one is like, you know, it's a kind of local wool. So you can still feel a little bit of the lanolin in it. But, but because of that, because of that, the wool and the wool fiber, it is naturally flame resistant. Doesn't burn. So if we make upholstery out of wool fabric, much better. Wool also absorbs toxics from the air a bit. So that's, it has a lot of Wool is another one of those super materials. Exactly that we that we used to make everything out of. Exactly. And that, right, and then we shifted away because all of these new fangled and and again, chemicals have made so many false promises to us over the over the years. And when we were talking recently about even trying to wrap our arms around six or seven thousand of the chemicals that we can we can talk about easily when it turns out ps that the epa says well actually we've got about sixty eight thousand chemicals that we've identified in this sort of toxic category in one way or another it's just like how are we ever going to compete with the chemical industry's ability to introduce newfangled chemicals right. that, again, have some promise of, of making things indestructible, but maybe things shouldn't be indestructible. It, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Do we need them always to look like wood floors, right? For example, yes. like, do we always need them to look like brand new, like brand new wood floors that are plastic right. that actually don't feel so great on your feet? If you walk around barefoot, if right. your feet stick to the plastic of the you know, the vinyl, the luxury vinyl yeah. tile, it's not so luxurious, actually. <laughs> you know, exactly. And But it's going to, like, last and it's going to look okay. And, you know, but then the impacts that come from that 
vinyl are so tremendous that, you know, why can't we just turn to some, some other options? And engineered wood floors, for example, are less expensive than solid wood and they have, they can use really good glues and they can be made pretty durable from, you know, bio-based finishes. But if we turn to things that are plant-based or mineral-based, they are regenerative. They'll come back. We can plant a new field of hemp next year. We can plant new straw. We can plant new trees. Trees grow much slower, so we have to be more Mm. careful with trees, actually. But we could use the waste you know, the waste products from trees that are usually go to often go to landfill, we could use that waste. We can use like silk. That's an amazing idea. Right. Yeah. That's amazing quality of silk. So we can use these more natural materials because they are regenerative. And then in their regeneration, like hemp in the field actually regenerates a previously toxic soil, for example. So if it's growing in a field that once had pesticides, that soil will be regenerated over a number of years to be healthier just because hemp is absorbing some of those toxics into its plant matter. That's super exciting. And then that fiber from the hemp plant can be used to make textiles, which have been used for centuries. You know, hemp textiles, right. like they were used on to make sails on sailboats because it's hydrophobic. It, it actually resists water. Naturally, without anything being applied to it. Yeah. That's the thing. I, right. Exactly. I, yeah. And we know wool does too. I just bought I bought a right. raincoat last season made out of wool. Does has no water repellents on it. It's wool. It resists water. Sure. This company figured out how to weave that wool really tightly so that it is, you know, it's super tight fibers and really high-tech equipment so that wool fiber raincoat is like water resistant without any additional PFAS chemicals to make it water resistant. We need more demand for plant-based, mineral-based products. So with our demand, the supply will get greater and the price will come down. The other challenge is, uh, and, and we talked about sofas earlier, and when you were at Q Collection, it was, what can we use instead of foam? Can we use down and feather? Is that one way to go? Some companies look at latex as another, There's a lot more expensive option there. I mean. Yeah, now actually there's a foam coming out of Scandinavia made of algae, which is super interesting. Anyway, just interesting. Algae foam. Yeah. Okay. It's not on the market yet. Stay tuned for that. All right. Because algae grows quickly. You know, algae grows fast. Exactly. And to your point, what what are those materials that that we can readily regrow and and replenish that, that supply? Part of my question, and my colleague Fred is always teasing me because he thinks I'm some sustainability skeptic about this. What I'm skeptical about is the demand from the high end to really ask these questions and to pressure this market forward. Mm -hmm. So what I'm told, Ansara, and you can tell me your take on this, I'm told, oh, don't worry, this next generation, what, Gen Z or the the millennials, I I don't know which generation is going to lead us forward Mm -hmm. with all of this, Mm -hmm. but I'm told that they're carrying more about this. When I do a quick research study, everybody says, oh, Gen Z is really focused on this. They're asking all these questions. They're saying they're willing to pay more for healthier products or more sustainably focused products. Is that your finding? Is that what you're seeing or hearing? I mean, I think that that has a lot of validity for sure. 
Yes, I think that has a lot of validity. <laughs> but it's because because they've been told their whole life, like, oh, this is going to be your problem. But right. I think I should say yes and. This is a yes and okay. question because I, okay. I know that there are a lot of professionals out there who are, well, in our little bubble of Healthy Materials Lab, they are taking our courses and they're coming back to us and saying, thank you. I needed this. My practice will never be the same again. And these are not Gen Z people. These are people who are in practice, some of the highest end interior designers actually, who are saying, thank you for giving me a path forward that's less destructive and giving me a more meaningful position in my personal life and career to contribute to people's health in the work that I do. And that's, you know, there's this whole focus on wellness that every, we talk about and we talk about biophilia sure. and then the way that we can yeah. think about wellness. But if we think about wellness from the point of view of the materials that are around us, and if you can provide, if you can create beautiful, performative interiors that are healthier, that eliminate the toxics from their composition, or you know, just really like have a criteria that says we're going to exclude all of these toxics from this home and give you a much healthier home. And you can still put your air purifier in there too, if you want to, <laughs> but you know, like we- For good measure, that, that HEPA filter will, will yeah, go a long way. Exactly, then that not only gives the client, you know, more confidence, but it gives the practitioner, the interior designer, kind of satisfaction in their, in their work that I've heard is really, really helpful as like in a kind of personal growth way, you know, to say like, yes, I'm, I'm interested in making beautiful things, but I'm also interested in contributing to society to make society healthier. Right. So, so staying with that, I mean, and, and I love that you said that you do this, and I know that uh, Caleb Anderson and, and his wellness focus, and he's a big fan of, of yours and, and, and says that he's learned so much from, from you and, and incorporates it in, in his work about educating people about how to, how to make healthier spaces and, and therefore live healthier, hopefully happier lives. So much of it to that point is the education. And if you were speaking to some of these, and again, I'm thinking of some of these high-end companies in the in the interior design world, what do we want to most encourage them to do? Because I, I believe that they want to learn more about this and take the positive steps. I see lots of reports on websites from these companies saying, look, we're looking at this now. We're talking about ESG and we're looking at our impact in, in various areas. So I think they want to be responsive to mm -hmm. this and to and to put more information out there. I get it. It's a it's a big ship and it's slow to turn. I get it. But what what would you most like to see these big companies do? And and in turn with with what these questions are that designers can ask to sort of move this along. Mm -hmm. There's an organization like Toxnot, for example, that they are completely focused on helping manufacturers go through their supply chain because a lot of manufacturers, you know, they're really just assembling components and they're buying all these components from other manufacturers. So how are they supposed to trace the ingredients of all their stuff? So it's somebody like Toxnot is an organization set up exactly to examine that supply chain and um, evidence 
make clear, make transparent what those ingredients are. And then working along with health product declaration or the declare label and, um, and others, they will evaluate it. So the health product declaration and declare label will evidence those, right. those ingredients. And you know, for a designer or a consumer, just the fact that it, just the mere fact that a manufacturer had the conscience to want to expose what their ingredients are to, you know, to, to say, yes, you can see inside our back doors. This is what our ingredients are. That will give consumers and designers confidence just as that. But the next level really is then assess what is in that stuff. You know, what is in all those, those ingredients. And then if you find something that's really problematic, take it out, (laughs) you know, find an alternative (laughs) or, you know, design something else out of a different kind of material or commit to, to reducing certain toxics. Like I would say if manufacturers could really understand the impact of vinyl on, I mean, we all went, we all heard it in the news that train tipping in Ohio in February was full of vinyl chloride that was going to produce PVC. You know how much PVC we consume in our lives, in our daily interiors? There's so much PVC out there. If we said, actually, we don't want that vinyl. We don't want those things to happen where communities are completely destroyed because a train came through with the vinyl chloride that was an ingredient used to make the vinyl so I could make a carpet or I could make a flooring or I could make my plumbing pipe or I could make, name it, you know, how how much PVC we have in our lives you know, that would be a huge step. I'm going to look for an alternative to vinyl. I'm going to, we're going to do things a little bit differently. So transparency is one thing. Assessing it, finding an alternative for that is a really good pathway. Or saying like, let's just eliminate a material or a chemical class that we know to be harmful. That would be really good. Like let's move away from stain repellents PFAS already is getting, you know, right. more PFAS attention. Right, PFAS is, right, is getting so much attention and everybody's saying, oh, no, 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 we're stepping away from that now all of a sudden. Right. Because these these forever materials. Forever, and, right. I mean, all these things shouldn't, right? And they're in right. our water systems now. Now PFAS is in our bodies because of the manufacture of this chemical in order to give us the qualities in our life so that, like, if we have a party and someone drops some red wine on our sofa... Don't worry about it. We have PFAS on our couch, you know, on our sofa, and right. we won't yeah. need it. But like, what if we just clean? What if we had to clean up after ourselves quicker? You know, what if we had to change a little behavior in order to, you know, in in order to um, design healthier? Would that be the worst thing in the world? You know, and so if we design as if we're designing for much longer periods of time, so there's not this disposable mentality. Oh, we'll just rip it out and replace it when it gets old. Instead, we put a little bit more up front and maintain it so that it lasts 50 or 100 years rather than lasting 10, 7 or 10 years. That's a whole different story. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Leloy whose latest collections include a summer-ready batch of outdoor rugs for all decor styles and all kinds of outdoor spaces. If you're headed to Atlanta this month, you can see those rugs and more at Laloy's showroom, which is open for appointments year-round. Find everything you need at LaloyRugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I, rugs.com. 
and follow them on Instagram and TikTok at Laloy Rugs to see the rugs from even more angles. When you were talking earlier about the interior designers that you had educated about a lot of this, was that was that a course that they took? Was that was that something that they learned through the the Healthy Materials Lab? What what, what yeah. was that? How, what kind of training were they getting? Because I, I'm sure a lot of designers would like to get that training. Yeah, no, no, that's great. Um, the Healthy Materials Lab. So one of the things we did when we established the lab, and we were thinking about like how are we going to change the world with this idea? How are we going to get all designers and all architects to understand that this is an issue? So we created an online course. It's a course that's made up of four sections, which really takes somebody through the very beginning stages. This is like, why does this matter? Like, what is material health? What are the, you know, how do we understand building products and chemistry? And then how do we start to make change in practice? And so that's the way the courses are laid out. And because we believe in affordability, it's as the price is really affordable. I think it's $100 for all four courses. It's like oh, really? super affordable. Okay. Like we really just want to incentivize change. And yes. we don't want it okay. to cost a lot. And we don't want it to, you know, it's, it's in depth. So it requires somebody to focus. There's like 26 hours of coursework there. So where so where can designers where can anyone listening to this go yeah. to to find out more information about this because this sounds like the big step forward yeah. if, if just people could right take this course exactly so where do they where do they go where should we send them our website has it so it has a link right there so that's the easiest place it's healthymaterialslab.org and then okay. you can go to the learning hub backslash learning hub that's the easiest way to find it all right in wrapping all this up. I just want to summarize for listeners. Your hope is that people will begin to ask more questions about ingredients and materials to better understand the ramifications for what it means that these materials that don't inherently have these characteristics and that now magically do, what it means has happened to them, what treatment they've gotten. And it sounds like you want the industry to ask its own questions and look for healthier Mm -hmm. alternatives for many of the materials they use. When it comes to the issue of carbon footprint and all these products coming from Asia, for example, how should we think about the environmental impact of all of this transportation? Yeah. You know, and I was talking to somebody recently about this because the big new focus is embodied carbon. Right. The carbon embodied in a material because throughout its life cycle, it's been expending carbon at every point. Yes, transportation is part of that embodied carbon. But what what we really need to count is all the carbon that's been emitted, let go, greenhouse gas emissions that have happened throughout every one of those processes, and we add them all up. And we call that, this is the total embodied carbon of a particular material. So I'm saying all this because we had a very interesting conversation, a series of conversations with the sustainability folks who are amazing at uh, Miller Knoll, mm. and they're very focused on this embodied carbon of their products. What they found in their analysis, and they put a lot of resources towards these analysis, is that the transportation piece of this is the smallest contributor of all of the carbon that's emitted throughout the, the life cycle of a product. The quantity from transportation, although it's significant, 
is not the highest emitter. It's the actual making of a material itself that is the high emitter. So the making of the material and whatever process and whatever chemicals and machines and all of that. And all the chemicals that, that you know, all the emissions from making the chemicals right. themselves and all the ingredients yes. to make a chair, for example. Right. The actual transportation of that chair from Asia to, you know, on a ship to California, put on a train, moved to Michigan, is not that high in comparison to all the emissions that happen in the production and all of that phase. So um, that is a very interesting fact that I've been holding on to. That's, it's really interesting because for so long, you know, even back to my own experience, I thought that we have to make it in America because it will be lower carbon emissions. Yes, and it isn't actually the highest contributor. The contributor to making synthetic chemicals or to making plastics, for example, to pulling oil out of our earth, refining that oil, that petroleum, into a usable, you know, distilled into usable components or mo molecules that can be used to make plastics and then making the plastic, that is the high contributor to carbon emissions. What creates the, the real tipping point. What catches us up to the Scandinavian countries, for example, or, or so many of the regulations that Europe already has in place around so much of this that many of the things we're talking about today aren't even a conversation there because so many things just aren't permitted right. already. Right, right, not, right. You can't do that, right. right? So we don't have to we don't have to control that production process because you're not even allowed to make stuff that way. Exactly. Right? What, what would create that tip? And again, we talk about this, oh, it's always going to be the next generation. And we keep telling, oh, so you're going to be responsible. So now we've put it on the 22-year-olds out yeah. there. Oh, it's going to be all yours to take care of. But really, they don't, they can't make all that happen themselves. The wealth transfer hasn't happened, first of all, right. yet. Yeah. They're, they're not controlling that huge amount of spending. It's still all the baby boomers have all the darn money. Yeah. And, and, I'm not, and I'm not convinced that they've got their foot to the pedal of, of making this change in a meaningful way, what is going to tip the scales yeah. ultimately? Well, I mean, I think you put your finger on it. Like if we could have regulation, I think regulation would be great. And we're seeing that a little bit with PFAS. You know, we're seeing that a little bit with some of these labor, the reports that have come out about the poor labor practices and making LVT, for example, that have just come out in the last few months. So yes, regulation is one. But, you know, here we are in the, like, you can do it, you know, the American dream capitalist society that America is built on at the same time as designers and as architects, as interior designers, we have a lot of control in our purchasing power. Yes. A lot. So our purchase, those baby boomers, if we as designers or, you know, can educate our clients to say, hey, here's a better option that will help your next generations, not only in their health right now, but in their livelihood for the next hundred years, if we make right. these other choices, then we can turn the manufacturers, because I know, and you know, from the, from the furnishings industry, those manufacturers are looking to us to tell them what to do next. And if we say, this is what people are buying, this is what we want to buy, they will change manufacturing processes even if the regulation is in place. 
what if we could somehow white boucle healthy design like to your point i don't know what the heck happened with white boucle that there was obviously so much demand for it that it's everywhere right yeah. but every manufacturer felt they needed some bit of literally i was sitting on a stage yesterday in atlanta and all the chairs on the stage were all white boucle because <laughs> the demand was just such that all these manufacturers felt, yes. So what, whatever pressures yes. we put or whatever notion we put in all those manufacturers' heads that they had to have white boucle something to offer the market, what if we were able to do that with healthy design? Yes, exactly. Except that it wouldn't be a trend. It would just be the future. Well, like, yes, it would just be. Yeah. Like, of course you wanted to have this forevermore. It would just be a foundational building block and an assumption that you would you would make without even having to think about it. Exactly. 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 And I think that's what has to happen. You know, we yes. need more designers to know that this isn't just an imperative and then demand that of those manufacturers. And the manufacturers will go back and produce it just like they do with the white boot clay. And, you know, if we can get away from this mindset that it's only me that I'm like, I'm making this decision for just me or like yes. that example that you gave, like, I'm going to just live here for five years. So I don't care. It's such a right. me centric idea. What if yes. you, what if you outfitted that one apartment or house that you're going to live in for five years with the foresight that at some point someone's going to tear it out, then wouldn't you make it of things that could be reused? Let's talk about like reusing some of that stuff that will take tear out. Let's talk about like, don't use flooring that needs to be adhered to the floor that needs to be peeled up and thrown away. Use flooring that clicks together. When you tear it apart, somebody else can use it. So we have to think like the Japanese mentality, which is it's not just about me. My life is in service to my whole community. My decisions that I make affect everybody, not just me. And, and it's such a great role. It's such an opportunity. I think that's the thing. It's just such an opportunity to play not only to make your, your clients' lives better and to make your own practice better, but to make, to contribute to the whole, you know, the rest of society in a way that will elevate everyone's lives. That's a huge, huge role to play. With just a little bit of information, I, I'll bet you that, that everybody does change their mindset the minute they understand all of this better. And, and as we've just been talking about, who better than the design industry to, to sell this into the culture? The culture looks so much to design for trends and for what's going on and, and for how they should be doing their homes. And so I think there is this opportunity for, and I think if designers see it this way and understand the huge impact that that they can have, that they can be the drivers of this of this change. Uh, really, really meaningful things can can happen. So that is what I am hoping will be the big takeaway from this conversation. Okay, I've I've kept you for far too long. This has been Fabulous. such a great conversation. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Dennis. It's been a wonderful time talking with you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. 
This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>